Welcome back to another episode of Laser Graves. I'm your co-host, E.K. Wimmer. Hello, I'm Mariah Rose. Hey, welcome back, everybody. If you are joining us for the first time, you're coming in at a really awkward time. Weird. You should pause it and go listen to the previous episode. Uh, <laughs> we're a podcast about the 80s, and we are in the middle of our very first series, and this is part two, so don't listen to this if this is your first time. <laughs> If this is not your first time, thanks for coming back, and hopefully you're as excited as we are to not only hear the rest of Depeche Mode's story, but to be done with it. To be on the other side, yes. Because <laughs> um, we love our favorite thing about podcasting with Laser Graves is not covering movies and stuff, but really doing research and deep dives, and this is the next level deep dive for us, even though it's still remotely surface, it's kind of a... a deeper overview it's just so much but it's a for us on our end the stuff that you're not hearing that we absorbed is tremendous because i can tell you i just got back from an out-of-town trip and it was uh six to seven hours up six to seven hours back and i listened to all the depeche mode albums and tons of interviews and documentaries the whole entire drive so my brain is like I love Depeche Mode, don't get me wrong, but I'm ready to be done. Too many facts. <laughs> Too many facts that you guys won't even know that, like, a scratch the surface of what we've been dealing with. Although, I would say this is really great because there are a lot of times when I've been like, but really what, what was happening here? Or, like, being unclear about little bits that inform the greater picture. So, knowing it now... I've got it down. And yeah. I, I feel like I know the band, whereas I had sort of hodgepodge together all of my information over years and years as a listener of the band. And now I have it organized in my brain. Yeah. And it helps me appreciate why these albums stand out to me. Mm -hmm. And it makes more sense why they sound the way they do. Like I have a much better understanding of why their sound developed the way it did, who was involved, who wasn't, that kind of thing. And yeah, I agree that all jokes aside, this was a really awesome journey and mm -hmm. I'm I'm so glad we did it and I really want to do it for other uh, musicians or actors or directors or whatever. Writers. Anybody, because I learned so much more about a band I thought I already knew a lot about and I'm hoping that that's what people are discovering too who really are into to, to Depeche Mode. I was curious how this would go over because we have a pretty diverse audience, but I have been... Uh, surprised to see some people reach out and, and they're real happy that we were doing All this. Right. So that's cool. <laughs> Hopefully you'll enjoy this one too, because this is really the nitty gritty, the golden era of Depeche Mode and so mm -hmm. much more. We are, we're going to see what we can get through. <laughs> we're trying our hardest, but man, we, that first episode was a few years and this episode is like 40 years. So we're Why did we best. do that? We're crazy. I don't know, because we got all excited. Well, I think we were going to do three parts, and then we were like, maybe we can just do two. Yeah, we're going to attempt. So hopefully, if you're seeing this, we did it in two, because <laughs> <laughs> I don't want to edit two, two more episodes. But we're going to try our hardest to get through it in one episode. It might just be a little longer. It might not. Who knows? We'll just see how, how it flows. Maybe we'll just talk really fast. I feel like we already are. Probably. Okay, well, um, before we get started, recent update for everybody. Last time we had been talking about how excited we were to go Aww. see The Cure, and we did not see The Cure. Even though we had tickets, 
uh, from very generous friends who were like, the cure is in town. The Wimmers have to be there. I know. I couldn't agree more, but our um, kid sitter came down very sick and was unable. And all of the sitters that we would have gone were exposed as well to the sickness. And so it's like, well, sometimes you got to be a parent. And unfortunately, being a parent this time meant uh, missing my favorite band of all time. I tried to send you alone. You refused. I really wouldn't. I mean, this would have been like the seventh or eighth time I've seen them. And I felt like at this point, it would be really cruel to to be texting you how great the show is. (laughs) But because I'm a glutton for punishment, I immediately looked up the set list. I know. I was like, don't tell me about it. I don't want to hear about it. Yeah. uh, Overall, I'm happy. I'm very happy for all my friends who went and had to share videos and and all that. The only thing I was bummed about is they played one of my all-time favorite songs ever, Six Different Ways, and they haven't played that in over 30 years. So it sucks that they finally played it live, and, and I wasn't there to hear it. But life goes on, and... In the meantime, I just kept researching Depeche Mode. Wow. <laughs> so well, they're also on tour, but we can't go see them. Yeah. Oh, gosh, no. Those tickets. It's not crazy. their doing, by the way. Ticketmaster. No. That's like an episode we should do. Is no. The history of Ticketmaster, because it is insane. Furious. I don't know what's going on, but yeah, Depeche Mode's out of the question. Anyway, we are getting into part two of our big series on the history of Depeche Mode. You know who this is already, don't you? Your favorite English group, my favorite English group. I never used this word in the ghetto, but it's become a part of my life. Depeche Mode. Okay. Mariah, for those joining us back for episode two, remind everybody where we left off on episode one. Okay, so we walked you through the formation of the band, uh, which was quite a journey, and we brought ourselves up to the middle of the 80s. So you'd think, oh, okay, we're just going to round out the 80s and continue on. We stopped at some great reward. We're going to pick up here with Black Celebration and take you (laughs) to the rest of their career. (laughs) And why this is a big deal is unlike a lot of bands from the 80s who put out one great album and then toured that one album for 40 years, Depeche Mode just kept putting out great albums to, no joke, a couple months ago. Like, that's how current their catalog is of great music. That's what makes this difficult. And I don't know if we really thought that through when we started, because Black Celebration onward, especially for the next four albums or so that we're going to get into in depth, is really the golden era of Depeche Mode. This is the band that defined really entire scene and and inspired tons and tons of bands to come. Mm -hmm. And for some reason, we decided to save it all for for, (laughs) to cram into one. Um, As you mentioned to me earlier, when I was like, oh, we got to talk about their solo careers and blah, blah, blah. You put it very well when you said, if you want to turn this into a Depeche Mode podcast, we can do all that. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, no. So... With that being said, for diehard fans like ourselves, just know that this is still a brief overview. We cannot get into the weeds with all this because we have so much to get to. They work and collaborate with so many talented uh, musicians, producers, artists, and we'll try and name some of them here and there, but we can't go deep. Yeah, but we are starting strong with what I would say I could comfortably say is one of our 
favorite albums of all time collectively. Yeah, I I think so. I think you're right. Black Celebration. So in March of 1986, Mute Records, whom we covered in the last episode, released Depeche Mode's fifth studio album. The album continued on into a darker, more goth sound. Okay. Nobody panic. I am not calling Depeche Mode a goth band. <laughs> I Calm down. That. I saw your face. No, right no. As I, I thought about it. that last episode when I talked about it, um, construction time again being industrial. And I was like, oh, hold on. Everybody chill out. <laughs> whoa, whoa, whoa. Yeah. Okay. So I think we can all agree that this darkening sound, not gothic, but darkening. It was a combination of Martin's songwriting and Alan's musical abilities. So this duo together are doing something really interesting. Yeah, we'll see this progress over the next few albums. But Alan is finally starting to get mm-hmm. a seat at the table. Who he's been kept out for for a while. You know, he's been given little tiny samples of the food at the table, but he has not been given a seat. And I do mean that. Like, we'll see when he's Mm -hmm. actually there eating with everybody else. The results are tremendous. But this is really the first album where I feel they're really a four piece and they're starting to come into their own. Yeah. Fully realized as well as they're keeping a team together of the same producers and stuff like that. So Mm -hmm. this sound is just getting better and better. Yeah, and I don't want to downplay the contribution of the other members, but I feel like those two were steering the ship at this point. Yeah, we'll talk about Fletch at the end of the episode. Dave, really up until the 2000s that we'll get to, his role really was to just be handed what to say, come up with a melody. He did come up with melodies, And then really just deliver the goods with the vocals. But other than that, you're right. You're 100% right. Uh, It was Gore and Wilder. They really were making Depeche Mode what they were. And you'll see as we move forward, the band was just starting to really come into their own at this point. And this trend continues and evolves to present day. So Black Celebration was a huge success. It reached number four in the UK. The album itself is widely cited by many musicians as deeply influential uh, to their sound, to their own music, whatever. Look it up. I don't have time to go into it. There's so many artists, uh, musicians who were influenced by this particular album. Personally, I can attest to the fact that this album was definitely definitely the part like a soundtrack to my teen years yeah i listen to this album on repeat anytime i pop it in i am 16 again driving through the desert of new mexico at night it's just absolutely a treasure to me and i think most people who listen to a band with love in their teen years have a similar experience and many of us had that with depeche mode what about you yeah well i think i mentioned this in the first episode is I had already known Depeche Mode, already knew Violator and everything mm-hmm. else. But when you showed me Black Celebration, and I think it is because it's a dark, a much darker album, this one spoke to me. And this is what turned me from being like, oh, Depeche Mode's cool, to really thinking Depeche Mode was an incredible band. Because even though the album had come out earlier, it made so much more sense to me. And I could see the vision. Their imagery worked more for me, yeah. too. And we'll talk about a key component that they bring in at this time and then really build upon. But I, this really, I think even though, if I'm being honest, it's not their best album. No. But I think it's their landmark album. I think it's the album that changed everything for them. And they just built upon the foundation of this 
in a way that nobody saw coming. Yeah, and you said it well. It, it's not their best album. And actually, critical reception of this album was mixed. Uh, guess what? I'm starting a new career critiquing critics. <laughs> oh, I love critiquing critics. Oh, my gosh. So obviously not really. But wouldn't it be great to just follow a critic, like their career, and write about how badly they critiqued somebody. It would be amazing. I... I well, we're very anti-establishment when it comes to critics. We've never cared. Like when I've put out albums or we've had art shows, I just don't care. If somebody knocks something, I'm like, what gives you the right to give any opinion whatsoever? You just they've convinced enough people that they're an authority. I'm sorry if you're a critic out there, but I no. just don't really value that. If you're a critic, you're being mean. Even <laughs> if you praise somebody, you're putting down somebody else. It's horrible. What an awful thing to do. Yeah, my advice to critics is go make your own art. <laughs> Quit talking about other people's. Yeah. Like live your own life, bro. There's a saying, those who can't do teach, but I think those who can't do teach and those who can't teach critique. Those who can't create critique. <laughs> <laughs> okay, the band, after the release of their album, they toured for Black Celebration and their success was really growing, building upon what was now a very firm foundation, leading them into a pretty successful future. Yeah, and the next pivot they make, because what I will give a lot of credit to Depeche Mode for, really up until a very small time in their career, apart from that one moment, they have always tried to kind of change their sound a little, change their image, and just make each album unique. Mm -hmm. And I would say up until a couple more recent albums, you would know exactly which album those songs came from yes. when you saw the artwork, when you saw photos of the band or whatever. They, they kept it very distinctive. And maybe that's because they were, you know, Martin and Dave were huge fans of Bowie and stuff. That's how he worked, too, was like, this album has this image and this look. Mm -hmm. And so I do like that they could have kept that same route with Black Celebration, keeping it that darker, kind of, like you said, almost gothy. They could have gone that route or even gone deeper. Mm -hmm. But I like that instead they said, let's let's take it in a different level. And they I feel like they brought back a little bit more of the pop sensibility. I agree. <laughs> because I feel like they had sort of... I wouldn't say abandon it because they clearly still wanted a hit. Yeah. But I feel like they maybe honed in on how to make songs a little bit more radio friendly again mm -hmm. with their follow up to Black Celebration, which is the monumental album and ironically titled Music for the Masses, which was titled <laughs> as a joke by Martin Gore because... Yeah. They felt, of course, they weren't appealing to any masses. We should call our, our album <laughs> Music for the Masses. Turns out joke was on them because this was the album that really started to put them on the map mm -hmm. internationally. And we keep saying that, like, this is the one that broke them. But it's because their career is really strange. They have a cult following that is very loyal and have their whole career mm -hmm. where on the charts it was not translating to their fan base. And you know what? That success builds. Like every single album as we're going through, up until much later than you would expect, builds upon the success of the last in a way that you wouldn't even think is possible. I just, I guess I didn't realize yeah. how successful they are. Yeah, and actually the peak of their success comes after you would think too. Yeah. That's the funniest part yeah. of all. 
Anyway, let's get back to Music for the Masses. Mm -hmm. So that was released in 1987 in September. This was their sixth album, and it spawned multiple hit singles. And I'll just list off some of them, and you'll go, oh, that's all from one album? Yeah. It just kind of reminds me of, like, the White Album with Beatles or something. When you start to look at the track listings, you're like, they're all from that same album? That's what it feels like. Strange Love, Never Let Me Down Again, Behind the Wheel, Little 15. Like, these all came from one album. In addition to that, I would credit their longtime collaborator, Martin Atkins, because he developed this image of those megaphones out in the middle of nowhere. And going back to what I was saying is anything you see from Depeche Mode with a megaphone, you know, it's from music for the masses. And I think that that's so brilliant. It's just really well done. It's really well marketed and sets the tone of what this album is like. Another reoccurring theme with Depeche Mode throughout their career is that they also like to change gears, not only with their sound and image, but with who they work with. They often feel like they can't stay with the same collaborators because it's going to just make the same album. It's smart. It is smart. And with this one, they brought in a pretty big heavy hitter again, producer Dave Bascombe, who had just finished or had done the Tears for Fears album. Mm. So he knew a lot on how to craft a really big electronic pop sound. And I think you can hear that in this. It's a really polished album. Man, Tears for Fears is cool. Yeah. I mean, not cool, but cool. So the other big aspects of music for the masses and why this became kind of one of the the big, big albums for their career still to date is that a huge collaborator really stepped up in a major way at this time. And that's Anton Corbin, who we haven't really talked about yet. Mm -hmm. He's this Dutch artist and filmmaker And they had worked with him previously on one video for Black Celebration. And then Dave, I think, in particular, really, really loved working with him. The whole band said that they were... That it was fun. It was the best time they had ever had making a video. So Dave, I think, is the one that pitched it. And they all said, absolutely, let's bring Anton back. And he, from this point on, minus a very small window later on, Anton and Depeche Mode become synonymous. Yeah. They are really one in the same. And when you think of what Depeche Mode looks like visually, it's Anton's image. Yes. Like he really does create the visual language for Depeche Mode from this point all the way up to their current video. And it's great to listen to him talk, not to go into him too far because that's crazy. But um, he, he really does talk about the band and how he works with the band, how he works through an idea, and it's chaotic and lovely and just the way you want an artist to be. Yeah, and I really love how authentic they are when they talk about Anton. They said every time they work with him, it's just easy. It's mm-hmm. fun. It's he, him running around with a camera. You know, it's very kind of... Yeah. Uh, it seems low budget, but it's not. And he's just got this vision. And I do like how throughout their careers... They often say he comes up with these really vague ideas and they just go, I guess, like at this point, we trust you. Yeah. And then they end up working out. And we'll talk about the pinnacle of that, them not having a clue what he's talking about. And that trusting in his vision turned out to be the biggest hit of their career. We'll get to that later. But needless to say, Anton comes on. So now all their videos have a real similar language to them. And then the other big part of music for the masses that we have to discuss is that Alan Wilder's role in this becomes big it becomes very upfront now yeah 
One of the things that we've seen up until this point is that Alan loves being in the studio. He loves engineering. He loves crafting the songs. Whereas the rest of the band, and I'm sorry to be so blunt, like, don't. They love to be out partying, come in, do their part, and then get out. They really, every producer that's worked with them has said that. That it's not, that's just not something that they enjoy doing. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is what Alan thrives in. And I saw this interesting interview with Dave, the producer, who talked about Alan's role in music for the masses. And what he talked about is he said, you have to have one member of the band steering the ship for it to have a good sound. And that Alan took on that role. And he said, everybody on the band seemed completely disinterested and bored by the process. Whereas Alan wanted to be there every Mm -hmm. single day. And for that, he thinks of music for the masses really as Alan's baby. And that this is, his contribution. Mm-hmm. So when you hear this album, that's what you're hearing is Alan's real leadership role in the band and crafting the sound. And why I mention this is because it lines up perfectly with his solo career, which we haven't really talked about, Recoil. He had already put out one album or, you know, kind of a demo. His second album had come out around this time too. So Music for the Masses comes out. It's a massive success. They go on this huge tour. The big, big thing that comes of it is they have this ridiculous idea to book the Rose Bowl in California, and they end up having 60,000 fans come out for this show, which was unheard of at the time. That is huge. It's huge. They did a a documentary to it called Mm -hmm. 101, which every Depeche Mode fan knows, like just witnessing this chaos. But during that same time, like right afterwards, everybody needed a break, and Martin and Alan all did, they did solo albums in this time. But Alan's solo album, if you listen to this Recoil album, you can hear music for the masses. You can hear, like, if you want to know Alan's footprint Mm. (laughs) or his fingerprint on Depeche Mode, listen to that. Because it's basically an experimental, instrumental version of Depeche Mode. Okay. So I found that really, really interesting. And it lines perfectly with what the producer is saying. Is like, this really was Alan's contribution yeah i haven't listened to that album in ages and i couldn't for this prep i was like i gotta stop because <laughs> it's spider webs out from here but yeah i'll listen to it again with that in mind needless to say the rose bowl thing all that now now they're on everybody's radar that's the one where dave's like they're swaying like a field of corn <laughs> that, yeah. that was my british accent. well and Sorry. i think this is also the moment when critics were like what how is this band Mm -hmm. selling out this stadium? That makes no sense whatsoever. And it's because they they had no clue the cult following that Depeche Mode had developed. Right. So now everybody's ready to listen to Depeche Mode. (laughs) So can you believe we've almost made it through the 80s? (laughs) We're getting there. (laughs) (laughs) We've only got to get to this year. We've only got to get to two of their biggest albums of their career. Researching this episode, I keep thinking about how all of this was happening to just some band. I mean, they're a great band, but there are so many great bands who just fade into obscurity. What is it that made their success so massive and so uh, long? And enduring. And I do think that part of it goes back to what we were saying of they kept trying to evolve yes. as a band, and that is key because there are bands that I will admit I love, but every album sort of sounds the same. Yeah, you know what you're in for. That's a bummer. As a creative person, like that's got to be depressing when you look back on your catalog and you go, I don't know, this is all kind of the same to me. I made 10 albums, 
but it was really just yeah, one. I found the formula that worked once and I just stuck with it. Yeah. That is not Depeche Mode. So with them, I mean, there are, of course, a lot of elements and a lot of luck at play. But at the end of the day, these are just some dudes from Basildon whose entire lives changed in the 80s. And I keep thinking about that as we've researched this. Like, they had just been... Like young men, teenagers. They were just dorks with synthesizers. And, and now they're like these established rocks, international rock stars. Yeah. It's crazy. And I think that that is important to note because Dave has his own rock star journey, but it was kind of shocking when he had his rock star journey because everybody's like, but he's a, a synth dork. <laughs> yeah, we'll see that with the next album. Yeah, yeah. But it kind of shocked everybody. It was like, who is this? So in 1989, the band recorded with Francoise Kevorkian uh, as the engineer and Flood yeah. as their producer. Yeah. This is important. People who know industrial music, especially in electronic music, will know the name Flood. He was a, he was a big deal producer. Yes. And we've watched several interviews with Flood and he gave great insight into what it was like working with a band during a pretty tumultuous time. And this is just the beginning. Yeah. Well, he... It was kind of like, you know how we talked about our kids as one is one was a starter child where it was, you know, they were so easy. Uh-huh. You're like, we should do this again. And it's not the same. That's, I would say the story with Flood because he does two albums. And this first one is like the starter child where it was a party and everybody had a great time. Mm. <laughs> Lightning doesn't strike twice. No, but I, I think even in this first album, he could kind of see that things weren't perfect. So they started with their first song. The first recorded song was completed and it was called a little song named Personal Jesus. <laughs> yeah. You heard of it? I was actually surprised by the unique marketing campaign that they had for the single. Have you heard about what they did? I have not. Okay. So that is good because I have this week's fun fact. Oh, good. (laughs) (laughs) Leading up to its release, the band or like their marketing team or whatever, they took out personal ads in a UK paper and the ad said... Your own personal Jesus, and then they had a number listed, and if you called the number in this ad, you heard the song. That's awesome. Isn't that really (laughs) cool? That's really cool. Interesting. I like that. Uh, I actually have an interesting story about this. Just yesterday, I took our girls to do some pottery, you know, the kind you paint your own pottery. And I was talking to the owner of the pottery studio, and he actually did a, he didn't know about this, but he did a 21st century version of this really? <laughs> to advertise his pottery studio. He went on Tinder and opened a profile and left a like beefy photo of himself <laughs> and just swiped, I think it's right, on everybody. And when they would respond to him he'd be like i'm not looking for a date check out my studio it's a great place for dates and he said he got so much business that's interesting i mean whatever works right so smaller scale but same idea yeah (laughs) okay so they have released personal jesus they recorded with kevorkian and flood as i've already said and back to the single this weird campaign was hugely successful hey i don't mean to interrupt you but you did i was 
air in my lungs ready to say words. I have to tell you, you keep saying Kevorkian, like the death doctor. Mm -hmm. When I was in high school, it was just a little side story. Mm -hmm. I had a two-piece industrial band (laughs) with a friend, and we were named Kevorkian. Nice. Yeah, I just wanted to put that, because that was actually a pretty cool band name. Well, this is Francoise Kevorkian. Yeah, no. French. Anyway. Okay, so... The Weird Campaign, highly successful. The single charted at number 13 in the UK. Oh, they're moving up finally in their own country because reoccurring story is they got no love, really. Yeah, they they will. They will, finally. And in the US, it was their first gold single and top 40 since People Are People. Wow. So they're they're finally starting to make a, a splash. And for a time, it was actually the most successful 12-inch single for Warner. Really? Yeah, I think somebody beat it eventually, but it was for a time. They were on Warner? I thought they were on Sire. Oh, they move around. Okay. Yeah, they move around. So in early 1990, they released Enjoy the Silence, which was even more successful, winning them a Brit Award for Best British Single in 1991. Yeah, let's talk about Enjoy the Silence real quick. Okay. Enjoy the Silence is the one that Anton had the video idea for. And if you know the video... It's Dave Gahan dressed with a crown and a robe mm. with a folding chair, just walking around various locations and sitting down. Mm-hmm. And that's what Anton said. He was like, I got an idea for a video, which they knew at the time was going to be like a massive hit, mm-hmm. which I love that as a musician, you know, when you're writing something that's working and they all knew that this song was going to be the song because Martin Gore said he wrote it. And it had a totally different vibe to it. And Alan heard it when they were all going off partying or whatever. And he and Flood, because they were like buddies in the studio, said, what if we made this into more of a dance track? They pitched it to Martin Gore, who was like, what are you talking about? It's called Enjoy the Silence. And he was not happy about it because he said it's supposed to be a quiet song. And they said, let us just have a crack at it. So Martin said, whatever, he leaves, comes back, and Alan reworks the whole song to be what you know as basically, I mean, I could, I think I could comfortably say their, their most popular song ever. And it's so funny to me that it wasn't supposed to be that way, coupled with Anton saying to the band, I've got an idea for a video. Dave, you're just going to have a folding chair dressed as a king and just sitting around spots. <laughs> Like, you're going to ruin a huge opportunity for the biggest single we have. And they just said, screw it. We trust you. And what's funny is when I think anybody thinks of a video of Depeche Mode, they think of Enjoy the Silence. Like, it is the video. Yeah, there's shots of the band, but they said they filmed that part in like half a day. (laughs) Whereas Dave was flying around the world having to do these ridiculous scenes. I just want to throw that out there because this is a massive song for him. And it all, by all accounts, it shouldn't have worked out the way it did. But it's because everybody just kind of let the cards fall and it... It just worked out. Yeah. And promotion for this uh, album was big. So they anticipated a lot for Violator and they were putting a lot of effort to it. At a venue in L.A., fans were coming to get a little sneak peek and they swarmed to crowds of tens of thousands to see the band and do like a signing and started a near riot A few people were actually injured, and it basically worked out so well for the band because the press was 
all over the story. <laughs> so they were all over the news for having created this pure chaotic moment because everybody was desperate to see and meet the band. Music fans are still jamming the streets around the Beverly Center. And police already have made several arrests. Let's go back to Jane Wells at the update desk. Some people are calling it a near riot. Police were called out to the Beverly Center about an hour ago when security forces were unable to handle the thousands of kids who turned out for an autograph session by the English group Depeche Mode. The line stretched for 15 city blocks. One woman has been taken to a local hospital after being crushed by fans, and two more ambulances have just been dispatched to the scene. Police have had to make several arrests, and the band was forced to leave early. So Violator was released, and it was the band's first album to make it to the top 10, making it as high as number seven, and it went triple platinum in the U.S., whatever that means. Policy of Truth. Will you sell a million records? It goes platinum. So three million. Okay. Thank you. I learned. Uh, Policy of Truth and World in My Eyes were also very successful singles. Now it's time to tour. The album was doing well. Fans were clearly ravenous. The tour was called, and I think this is my favorite tour title, World Violation Tour. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's good. Yes, it's great. And they played over a million people on this tour. And I want you to think about that number. Imagine playing shows for a million people. Yeah, it's ridiculous. That's crazy. And keep that locked away because that's not their biggest tour <laughs> yeah no it's only gonna get crazier so just wrap your brain meat around that number the rapid sale of tickets actually was bonkers too their show at giant stadium sold forty-two thousand tickets in a few hours and dodger stadium sold nearly fifty thousand in i think it was like 30 minutes that's crazy. Yeah. The it's crazy to think of who they were and where they've gone. I know. That's they were just wild. some kids. And keep in mind, we're not talking over the span of 20 years. We're talking a few years. Like, yeah. they started in 80 by 81, and then now we're only still in the late 80s. So it hasn't even been a decade. That's a fast, a fast rise. And think about how many albums they're churning out, these tours. And this tour was no different. It was insanely, insanely successful. And of course, we're thinking about all the shows they're playing. But in addition to all these shows, they're being interviewed. They're doing like radio gigs, all of these things to promote the album. That stresses me out to think yeah. about. Yeah, not a career for you. Yeah, think about how tired you get after a half an hour of small talk. And now imagine doing that for a year. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's crazy. So now at this point, I think most people were like, Depeche Mode's reached their peak. They've, they've, I know we're not there. I see you raising your eyebrows. No, I'm just saying, I think the band thought that too. Yeah, I think yeah. that that was like, well, we've done it. Yeah. We've I, summited the mountain. Yeah, how can you get any higher than this? Yeah, how could they carry on? Well, but, it turns out they, they can. <laughs> Buckle in. Spoiler. We're getting through this, everybody. I know. This is insane that we just keep building like you said it just keeps growing and growing like mm -hmm. i think when most people think depeche mode they would think that by the time we got to violator on this podcast that that's really the peak of the band and it's mm -hmm. not by any stretch no not even kind of actually so they follow up violator they take a little time off then they regroup but by the time they regroup so we're out of the 80s now, everybody. We yes. made it. Survived the 80s. We've we're only got a few the... more decades to go. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my gosh. We're going into the 90s. 
And anybody who lived in the 90s, prepare yourself because Depeche Mode gets very 90s. This is going into their eighth album, which will be called Songs of Faith and Devotion. Such a good album. It was released in March of 93. But before that happens, let's talk about how it got made, because this really is the moment for Depeche Mode's story. This is the unraveling. This is the opposite of Violator. So Flood talked about Violator and said, I came in with this band. Everything worked out smooth. It was the most incredible experience for everybody. The band was in good spirits. Everybody was firing like on all eight. They do this huge world tour. They're selling all these albums. Everybody's just like, this is it. This is the best it can go. Let's keep the ball rolling. So they bring Flood back. And unfortunately, things don't go so smooth. Flood had worked with U2 and he had monumental success with them, as you can imagine. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that he had done with U2 was this idea of let's get a home like over in Spain or something like that. And we'll outfit it in a, in a studio and the band will live and work together 24-7. And that way you guys will like really get to, to be in each other's heads and produce amazing music. Because for U2, that worked out amazing. We're not talking about U2. We're talking about Depeche Mode, which is a very different band. Also, the way in which they approach studio practice is very different. Yeah. They do not live and work together. They hardly even hang out, to be honest. Yeah, I got the impression that they love each other, but they're Mm. like family, but not friends. They're like working friends is what they are. They're like working family. Yeah. And they always have been. They come into the studio. They do their parts. They have a little fun together. They might go party afterwards, but then they go to their hotels their rooms, whatever. That's what they've always done. Mm -hmm. They have their private lives, their private space. They also keep in mind that Violator had ended a while ago. So they took years off. And by the time they're ready to get back into the studio, not only had they like gone on and lived their own lives, they had come up with new experiences personally. (laughs) Um, This had been the problem. So Flood says, I'm going to rent this home. And we're all going to live together. And the guys are like, whatever. You know, you created Violator for us. We trust you. Let's see what happens. Even though I think they were all very apprehensive to this idea. Dave, at the time, between Violator and this, had moved to L.A. This is important for his story. This is the moment it happens. Yeah. He moves to L.A. He gets in with the whole 90s scene. He's hanging out with Jane's Addiction and everybody else. Ew. Well, a lot of bands, actually. Soundgarden, all them. And Not he's... Cool. Getting into the rock lifestyle. And he's like, hey, I think this is what I want to be is like a (laughs) rock star, not like a clean cut synth guy. And this is when he takes up heroin. And this is part of Dave's story that defines Depeche Mode from this point on and really alters the entire career of everybody involved. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the band doesn't know. (laughs) That's so weird. So well, they didn't do that stuff. So they didn't really even know what to look for. You know, and they were all caught up in their own lives anyway. Meanwhile, Dave grows out his hair, gets more tattoos, gets into this gritty lifestyle and becomes a heroin addict and then is told, hey, you're going to move into a house with your former, you know, your old bandmates 24-7. In Spain. In Spain and make an album, (laughs) heroin addict. (laughs) So imagine how this goes. Yeah, because he was like thinking of himself as like a 
grunge inspired musician this is the early 90s he was trying to stay relevant i get it but there was pushback from the band too because he's like let's be a rock band and i do think alan was kind of on board with this because this is when alan gets into drumming a lot more Mm -hmm. so he brings in live drums and you'll see that in the videos for these for this album um in your room all that kind of stuff he's playing drums and he really did so i'll skip past all the drama but needless to say because we could spend a whole podcast on this it imploded in grand fashion yeah. in front of everybody, especially Flood. And he was like, whoops, this was not a good idea. This is not you too. Nobody had fun. Nobody had fun. They got to the point where they weren't even speaking. If they saw that somebody else was in the room, they went the other way. Like they were not communicating anymore. They were arguing constantly. It was coupled with Dave's heroin addiction He was also painting. He was painting. Martin (laughs) Gore was a raging alcoholic that we haven't been talking about. Fletch was struggling with depression, severe clinical depression. And Alan, meanwhile, is like, I've got a grand vision. Let me take over for a lot of these songs. And Martin's like, hell no. I'm the one that writes the songs for Depeche Mode. And this came to a head. And this is, if you know Depeche Mode's story... This is was already brewing, especially over Music for the Masses by Violator. Fletch is kind of off doing his own thing and really more the intermediate. He'll step in when Martin won't say anything. He'll step in and kind of be Martin's mouthpiece. But otherwise, he's out of the picture. Dave is totally out of the picture because he's just he's off doing, doing drugs. So it's really between Martin Gore... And Alan uh, Wilder, and this is when it came to a head, was they had very different visions for Depeche Mode. And mm-hmm. I think this is what happened. You know, this was really interesting to me, this portion of their story, because I I don't really think I understood Fletch. And I still don't, because there's never talk of his musical contribution at all. But... There's a lot of talk of him being protective of Martin. So they have some sort of friendship and he feels very protective of his, I guess, more sensitive friend. And Alan is aggressively going for what he wants. He has a vision. He has ideas. Everybody else has been a mess. And he has ideas. And Fletch keeps stepping in for Martin, who's struggling for sure. Yeah, absolutely. And that's been always the case. Is yeah, it's, it's like the two of them together. And it's really sad because we'll, we'll get to it. We'll get to it in a second. But I'm glad you brought that up, the dynamic. It's at this point when Alan said, I don't think I can be in this band anymore. Yeah. Like, this is not working in, at all. It's not fun. Nobody appreciates my contributions. And I think that that's a very valid point. Oh, yeah. Because he has brought them into the greatest era of their careers. And I do not think they could have done it without Alan. And now we're going to go on tour. And he knew it. And they were like, okay, we're going on a multi-year tour. He said he'll just stick through it. And to his word, he did. But I think all the while he knew that this was not going to sustain itself. So they wrap up the album, surprisingly. And on top of that, it ends up being like an incredible album. So good. They put out some of easily some of the greatest work of their careers. And it also becomes the very first number one album in the UK and the US. Wow. Which is kind of crazy considering the circumstances. And you can feel it when you listen to the album. Yeah, you there's so so much much tension in that album. Anyway, they go on the devotional tour, the notorious devotional tour. 
27 countries, 158 dates. And it was so, it was, it was very, uh, debaucherous. We'll say that. Wouldn't Um, it have to be though, if you're going to do the same thing, 158 times, you're going to need to self-medicate. That's insanity. It is insanity. So at this time, they're doing this multi-year, ridiculous 2 million plus people they're playing for. Uh, oh, 2 million now. We've oh, yeah. climbed. Dave's on heroin. Martin's an alcoholic. Fletch is, Fletch, Fletch is dealing with depression so much that he has to go off the tour. Yeah. And Alan sticks with it, but he is done. And by the end... The whole band said everybody was done. Like nobody, they were shocked that anybody could survive that tour. And this is when it happens. On his 36th birthday, 1995, Alan announces he's done. He's out of Depeche Mode. And this was a big, big deal because they were at the height of their career. Their first number one album. And he announces his departure, which was met with really weird results with the band. So Dave is in L.A. again doing heroin. He's like, whatever, I don't care. Because he was so self-absorbed and he admits that. Yeah. He was out of his mind. He didn't have any clue what was going on. Martin, I think, was like, whatever. You know, I he think... He was mad. He was mad already. And I think that there was a lot of jealousy issues between the two of them, too. Because they were like, we both have a vision. Mm-hmm. And Fletch, being protective of Martin, was like, whatever. Yeah. And felt really um, hurt by the way that Alan abruptly just said, by the way, I'm out. So I think that there was a lot of mixed feelings. Needless to say, he was done. And everybody kind of looked at Depeche Mode and said, there it is. Like, this is the end of the band. We can't go on. Even Martin Gore said that. Like, Alan's gone. We can't go on. But that is not the story. And we've gotten this far. Are we going to continue on? Thank you for sticking with us. I think we can get through it because we will not be spending nearly as much time on the rest of this, but we do have to get through the rest of their careers. But that was the moment. That is Depeche Mode's story and Songs of Faith of Devotion was the breaking point. All right. And that leaves us only in the (laughs) (laughs) mid-1990s. Keep in mind, they're only in their 30s. Right. This is actually when I was actively listening to Depeche Mode. I was a teenager, and I'd found them a few years before their next album, Ultra. But by the time Ultra came out, I was a super fan. And I will say that I, at that time, thought they were old men doing like a glory tour. I did not understand the band's history at all when Ultra came out. So while I was a teenager, the band was actually not old men. They were just (laughs) in their 30s, carrying on with their lives. But Dave was really, as we said, hitting rock bottom. Martin was trying to get back to recording in the studio, but Dave just kept skipping out on dates that they'd set up, and it was a massive struggle to get him to record. In one of the interviews, they were talking about how they had a like month-and-a-half session in New York City, and they only got one usable vocal recording from Dave. Mm-hmm. which had to be assembled from several different takes because of yeah. this. This is all because of the heroin addiction. And yeah. cocaine was also a problem. Yeah, I would say to keep that in mind that you would think that their story would go, oh, they they had their, their darkest moment and then they got their life together. It's actually the opposite. Because one thing that we didn't mention with Songs of Faith and Devotion is even though he was on heroin, he gave to this day by everybody involved his greatest vocal performance of his career yes. with the song Condemnation. And so it's like all of them were saying, yeah, he was out of his mind, but he was still stepping up and delivering like mm-hmm. the greatest vocals of his career. 
that's not the case anymore. After that, everything imploded. It's not like he cleaned up his act. He actually went worse. And so yeah, that's what function. they're dealing with now is like, how can we even make an album? Yeah, obviously everyone in the band, everybody supporting the band kind of thought that this was the end. And Martin was seriously considering turning all of these songs that he had written into a solo effort. And then in 1996, Dave OD'd. The lead singer of Depeche Mode, David Gahan, is arrested after allegedly overdosing on drugs early this morning. West Hollywood police say that they, along with paramedics, answered a call at the Sunset Marquee Hotel and found 34-year-old David Gahan passed out. He was rushed to Cedar sinai Medical Center, treated and released. Police arrested him for investigation of cocaine possession and being under the influence of heroin. This was a big deal. Like his, he f- like actually died. His heart stopped for several minutes. Uh, so he really almost died. And then survived. Was court ordered into rehab. And weirdly, it seems to have just stuck. And like I said earlier, everybody was kind of surprised because they were just this synth pop band. And here he was having rock star problems, whatever that means. So people wanted to talk to him about it. He was very interviewed around this time. But when he was out of rehab, the band went back to recording and started (laughs) working with Tim Simenon. They released Barrel of a Gun and It's No Good as their first two singles. Yeah, Strong outing. And I absolutely remember anticipating the release of the music videos on MTV. Yeah, we were talking about that. It's tonight. It's tonight. I'm so excited. The album itself was, in fact, a birthday gift to me as they released it on my, well, 16th birthday month in April of 1997. This album debuted at number one in the UK and Sweet Sweet Germany, who... Let's just give a shout out to Germany, who yeah. has been in love with Depeche Mode forever. From day one, yeah. <laughs> Did it go to number... I thought it went to number one in the U.S. also. No, number five in the U.S. Okay, so which, they only ever had one number one hit. I think so. And that number five, though, in the U.S. is that's freaking huge. huge. Yeah, that's massive. They very wisely opted not to tour in support of this album. Well, everybody involved in their team said, like, there is no way Dave can go on tour. It had been less than a year of sobriety for Dave, and yeah. the rest of the band was still emotionally recovering from the last tour, the recording process. That was a smart choice. Yeah. Instead, they just had a couple of really short concerts and released two more singles, Home and Useless. And I'm immediately like, how are they making this caliber of music at this point in their career? So good. Yeah. And then in 1998, they released the singles 86 to 98 and added a new single to this album, Only When I Lose Myself. That's so good. I remember getting the singles VHS. Yeah. And you and I sitting in your parents' house in the living room. (laughs) Because we were teenagers. Yeah, watching the videos. And then that video for the new song. And we were like, this new song's incredible. And then we found out that they were going to go to Phoenix, Arizona. Yeah, they announced a supporting tour for this. And we saw them in Phoenix. And actually, this is my very first ever concert. And still to date, I would say one of the best shows we've ever been to. The Dave is a great performer. He's, They're all good, but he's, he's a cheese really bag, good. but boy, can he put on a show. He peacock struts and yeah. you just have to be charmed. They sounded amazing. That was such an incredible show. So yeah, we got to see him on that tour. Yeah. Good tour. So he had cleaned up his act now and they're like, 
they're starting to get their stuff together. I think that's good. It's kind of amazing that they survived this, to be honest. It's shocking. And they survived it and were still thriving after all that they had been through as a band. Yeah. And so when you listen to Ultra, keep that in mind that this wasn't some, oh, return to form, you know, they got their stuff together. This was a struggle to make this album. And it's not like it just went smooth once he started to clean up his act. It was still a struggle. And if you know that and you listen to Ultra, you'll hear it. It's yes. it's not his strongest performance. It's not their best work. There's a lot of fillers on the album, a ton of like little instrumentals and stuff. And you can tell. I still love it. I still love it. Oh, no, don't get me wrong. I love it, too. But you can tell they're just trying to make an album. Yeah. Whereas the next album to come, and we're going to go through these next ones pretty fast. So yeah. if you're a fan of their recent work, we're not downplaying their importance, but we just can't devote that much we're time to them. We're an 80s podcast and yeah. we're, we're in the 90s still. But we're into 2000s now. Oh, okay. 2001, Exciter comes out. And right. why I think this is important is because this is really the first album that they're all in good health, in right mind, ready to make a true album again. They've this matured. Is like the real next album. Ultra was kind of a fluke. You know, this kind of like just kept the ball rolling. Exciter was a legit album. That's released in May, their 10th album. And they brought in a new producer again, Mark Bell, who we know very well because he's done a ton. I think six Bjork albums. Mm-hmm. So I know his name really well. Band sounds good. Album sounds good. I would say overall, great album. I mean, we're nostalgic for it because we really like it. Martin does a song called Comatose on there, and I love that song. There's only one weird song. It's called um, Dead and Night. We are the Dead and Night. Oh, I like it. I love that song. It's probably my favorite song, but it is so out of place on this album because if you were to look at their entire catalog, this is a very quiet and kind of minimal album. And it cracks me up that it's called Exciter because it is, there's nothing exciting about the album. It's pretty like minimal. This is also one of the only times they ever abandoned Anton because they said MTV and VH1 was like sick of seeing tapes show up that said new Depeche Mode video directed by Anton. And so they knew that they were good enough friends that he would get that that they needed to kind of change things up and just show Mm. people that they had a new vision. So when they released their first single, Dream On, they got a new director and it actually worked because Exciter ended up being a sea change for the band. Mm -hmm. And all of a sudden they weren't trying to win over the critics. The critics love Depeche Mode now. And now they were like these old elder statesmen cult heroes and everybody was on board. And from that point on, really, they've rode that wave of, Everybody just kind of knows Depeche Mode Mm -hmm. and appreciates them. So Exciter was a big moment for them because it brought them back into being able to make an album again. And they didn't really waste any time. By 2005, they followed it up with Playing the Angel, Mm -hmm. their next album. We saw them on that tour. Fantastic. And I'm glad that we did because after (laughs) binging all their albums on my road trip again... Mm -hmm. I can comfortably say playing the angel, strong, strong push to revisit it if you haven't, because I think it's probably their best album, maybe since Songs of Faith and Devotion. Oh, like John the Revelator is on there. All of them are on yeah. there. That Precious. Al- oh, Precious. Okay, so let's talk about Precious. Precious was at a very dark time for Martin Gore. He was a pretty bad alcoholic at this point. He was going through a divorce. And that song's for his kids. It's about him worrying 
what's going to happen because their parents are splitting up. So he was at a really dark point and he knew Dave needed to sing that song, but he couldn't do it. Oh, but I will say precious is probably one of the best songs they've ever written. And it's probably one of the best singles, this side of violator that they've ever released. So to all of you Depeche Mode fans out there, if you haven't revisited playing the angel, I'm going to tell you, after Songs of Faith and Devotion, I think it's their best album. And it really holds up really, really well. Suffer Wells on there. That's important because that was the first single ever since 1981 to not be written by Martin Gore. It was written by Dave Gahan. Because Dave said, hey, if we're going to keep doing this, can I maybe start writing some songs? And surprisingly, maybe learned a lesson from Alan leaving Martin said, sure. (laughs) (laughs) Or maybe he's just growing up. Yeah, maybe he's just maturing too. So playing the angel, I I did want to just spend a second with that because it's an incredible album. I actually have some facts about playing the angel because I accidentally researched it. Oh, yeah, please do share because it's it's just so good. So their tour, their nine-month tour, Uh played to three million people now. Holy moly. 31 countries. Wow, they did an even bigger tour? Yes. That's crazy. They played at our grad school, for heaven's sake. That was such a good venue to see them, too. Yes, and they also released a live video, like a live show from Milan yeah. on that tour. Yeah, they did. They do that a lot, you know? They Loads do the live lives. from Paris and mm-hmm. all this kind of stuff. Anyway, big, big album, amazing album. And if you think Depeche Mode kind of stopped at Songs of Faith and Devotion, and you only want to give it one more shot... This is the album to go listen to. Interesting. Yeah, I would say that anyway. Yeah, and then they keep the ball rolling. They didn't slow down. Yeah, so they. I'm going to kind of enter warp speed here. 2006, Best Of, Complete Depeche Mode box set. They also won a 2006 MTV Europe Music Video Award or Music Award for Best Group. In 2008, they began recording with Hillier once again and also signed with EMI. I think Martin Gore got a songwriting or like a songwriter award at some point, too. I think so. They've won a lot of awards. They've won a lot of awards. Yeah. And they release um, quite a few albums in this time. Yeah. So in they release album number 12, Sounds of the Universe, again, in my birth month. The album was <laughs> number 20 or number one in 21 countries interesting ho-hum they were nominated for a grammy in the best alternative album category supporting the album they played live on jimmy kimmel and twelve thousand fans showed up <laughs> Twelve thousand fans keep in up. mind they're like 12 albums into their career now yeah so when everybody's like depeche mode was an 80s band like you guys don't get (laughs) these guys were experiencing the peak of their success way beyond the 80s yes and the album supporting the the tour supporting album was called tour of the universe okay okay that was a lie they stayed on this (laughs) they stayed on the planet right whatever so the tour actually had to cancel a bunch of dates because dave had a tumor and had it removed but they recovered, rescheduled misdates, and then headlined Lollapalooza. Like, no big deal. <laughs> I've died before. What's a tumor? <laughs> <laughs> the band also met up and played Somebody on this tour with Alan Wilder in London. Oh, I love that he came back. It was like a cancer 
not not a benefit for cancer for like cancer treatments <laughs> it was a concert i'll though, tell you they, to the nerds out there they must have freaked out yeah the tour and the, had the band playing to nearly three million people in 32 countries and one was i think one of if not the most successful tours of 2009 like of all the tours jeez then they released remixes uh two i think it's called remixes two 81 to 2011 and that featured remixes by both vince clark and alan wilder yeah i love that they brought them both back and there were a bunch of other cool folks but we don't have time for that look into it yourself this is already like a million hours long so that leads us to Delta Machine, which was released through Columbia Records now in 2013. It was the first time the band had worked with Flood since Songs of Faith and Devotion. <laughs> the, the, they needed a little time. It, it went okay, but the album was actually less successful than previous albums, but it did fine. Also, uh, I can see why. I read somewhere that the band still puts Mute Records on their albums, even though they're not with Mute Records, just because of loyalty. Really? Yeah. I thought Daniel was still involved with the band. I don't know how he's still involved, but they're not signed with Mute. Oh, I do know. It's because Mute sold. That's what happened. Oh, okay. Because I listened to an interview with them recently. So does it not exist anymore? Yeah, I think he sold the company. Okay. So I listened to an interview recently, and this is crazy. Sorry to go off on this, but no, no. this is awesome. The interviewer said, is it true or is it just urban legend that you never signed a contract with Daniel for Mute Records? And they said, we never did. This is crazy. They put out so many albums and it was just a handshake that Daniel Aww. just said, do what you want to do. But, and they trusted him right from the trusted beginning. Him, and that's what they said. They said they trusted him and they said, we didn't sign our first contract with that for like mute until he sold the company Whoa. like in the 2000s. Isn't that wild? Wow. Anyway, so they're just song and dance continues. New album, new tour, win some awards, big in Germany, no matter what. <laughs> yeah, it's Depeche Mode and Hasselhoff. So speaking of Germany, they released a live in Berlin in 2014. In 2016, they were back in the studio with both Dave and Martin writing new songs. The new album Spirit was released in 2017. The tour kicked off later that year, and the band toured Europe and North America and ended up doing so well that they had to book four nights at the Hollywood Bowl, which was, I guess, a big deal. Yeah, I would say that's a big deal. I'm kind of a big deal at the Hollywood Bowl. The tour concluded with two sold-out shows in... Germany. Germany. <laughs> in 2019, the documentary Spirits in the Forest, which was directed by Anton Corbin... And then it was like initially released in theaters and then it was later released on Blu-ray, but it was retitled Live Spirits. And then in 2020, they were, I, I know I'm like rapid firing through this, but in 2020, they were inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Do you know, I didn't see that um, because I really don't care about the Rock and Roll like, Hall of Fame. What does that mean? Is it, it a place? It's just, it's so dumb. But do you know i think vince showed up do you know if alan showed up for that i don't know i hope he did because they're all on good terms now i think so yeah yeah they're all old men good grief but that brings us up you guys everybody we made it we're here you would think but we got one more album to go <laughs> and it's a doozy oh yeah because there was a little bit of a little bit of news that happened Aww. last year on may 26th 2022 
at age 60, unexpectedly. That's, that's this week if you're listening to this in real right. time. Very unexpectedly into the shock of everybody. Andrew Fletcher, old Fletch himself, died suddenly of heart condition. And it really rocked everybody. Like nobody was prepared for that. Us included. It was oh. really sad. Because let's talk about this. The number one question when you say Fletch is, what does Fletch do? Well, he protects Martin. Beyond like being his, you know, vocal piece. There is proof. Fletch does play live. He plays the bass parts and everything. And he does contribute. But that is not his role. And I think people just need to realize it's okay to not be the writer Mm -hmm. or anything because there were people for that. When you want to, as we're talking about this, now that we're talking about Fletch being gone, if you were to break it down with the classic four, Dave was the voice and the showman. He was the the moves. He was the sexy front man with all the charisma. Martin is the songwriter and the ideas guy. Soft boy. Yeah, he's like the architect. Alan was the really the arranger and composer and engineer. So this is how they worked for years and Mm -hmm. years, especially through their golden era, is that Martin would bring in a demo, hand it to Alan, and then Alan would go off and like change it into Mm -hmm. what you hear is Depeche Mode. And then Dave would come back and be like, sweet, I'm going to lay down some vocals. Fletch would do his little bass lines or whatever, but he really wasn't involved in that. He was also kind of the business end. Mm -hmm. And most importantly for Fletch, he was the mediator. He was the one that kind of kept everybody going because we think of Dave and Martin as like buddies through all of this, but they really weren't. They were just like professional friends and they had differences a lot. And they had addictions. Absolutely. And they had big personas, big personalities. So Fletch's role really was to say, don't forget, we're a band, we're a team, and we're going to keep going through this. He's so interesting because he's like an introvert. He doesn't need to be in the spotlight, but he is the glue that's holding it all together. He's also very confrontational. And I can see (laughs) that is why he was the voice for Martin is he was not afraid to go toe to toe with anybody. So he might be quiet. But when he says something, it's like, whoa, okay, sorry. Yeah, listening to all these interviews with him, I was like, oh, so yeah. he'll punch somebody. He will. He, sure. He's got an edge to him, <laughs> but he's got a great laugh, too. Yeah. Anyway, R.I.P. He dies, shocks everybody, and everybody's like, okay, so that's the end of Depeche Mode, part two. Because there's only two. They went into the studio the very next month. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and by June of 2022... Now a two-piece, old men, Martin and Dave, go in and start working on their next album, Memento Mori. And I am so glad they did, because it comes out, it's released, their 15th album in March of this year, 2023. And I think everybody was like, we'll just see, because they've released like three albums, kind of rapid fire, and they were... I would, we'll, we'll wrap this up in the final thoughts, but I don't know if anybody had high expectations for a great album at this stage in their no. career, but they released the lead single, Ghosts Again, directed, video directed by Anton. Of course. And I think all the Depeche Mode fans were caught off guard because I'd say since Precious, maybe, this was an incredible single 
and an incredible song by Depeche Mode. I don't know if anybody was really prepared for this good of a song to come out. Not like knocking their their music or saying they hadn't been doing good music. They'd been doing great music. They'd been doing good music. This was great. (laughs) That's what I would say. (laughs) This was they were doing great music. This was super great. Yeah. And it comes out. We ordered it. I waited. I got it for your birthday, as we mentioned. Mm -hmm. We listened to it, and I was blown away. I've listened to it so many times. This album, since playing The Angel, I would say, is like a really amazing album and has easily one of my all-time favorite Martin Gore songs, Soul With Me. I love... It's probably my favorite song on the album. Wow. I was blown away by that. And an interesting side note... This came about because during the pandemic, Martin Gore was like, I don't know, I'm just guess I'll write some songs. And he was contacted by his friend Richard Butler, who's the lead singer of the Psychedelic Furs, Mm -hmm. who said, hey, I don't know what to do during the pandemic. Do you want to write some music together? So he had some lyrics. Martin had some music. And that's how these demos started, Whoa. which I'm going to just side note, not to give my <laughs> my personal opinions. I'm really glad Richard wrote the lyrics uh, because <laughs> the lyrics were getting a little weird there. You don't need to be a critic. Anyway, so they write these demos and Martin sends them to Dave. Dave hears that psychedelic is with Martin Gordy. He's like, what the hell is this? What are you doing? And he's like, no, 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 trust me. He's not going to be singing on the album. We've just been working on some songs and they're too good to not be a Depeche Mode album. And that's how Memento Mori came to be. And it was just released. And I will say, what a way to keep going. It's great. Unlike bands their age that have been around for 40 years that put out crap albums at this point. This band just put out one of the best albums they've put out in 30 years easily. So mm-hmm. that is Depeche Mode. And we did it. Actually, the timing's not too bad. This isn't too long of an episode. Okay. I hope that didn't like make everybody crazy at the end. But we are an 80s podcast. It's hard not to talk about some good albums that came out. If it made you crazy at the end, you're welcome. You get yeah. to be crazy. Let's talk about, let's wrap this up with final thoughts. Now that we have covered, because this was maybe more than we thought we were getting into. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, If you're a Depeche Mode fan, I really do hope you enjoyed this. If you're not, and you still listen to both episodes, thanks. Because we, we had so much fun doing this. Yeah, It's cool to go through an entire career of some artists who have been sticking with it and not just cashing in mm-hmm. on the hits. This is not that band. Yeah, it's true. Um, if you don't like Depeche Mode, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> That's a real bummer for you. They're a great band. I love them so much. I love knowing more about them and their story. I feel like I know their personalities a little bit better. Not that I need to know their personalities, whatever. But uh, it was a really fun journey. And I'm really super duper excited to take a break. (laughs) Yeah, me too. (laughs) My brain is Depeche Mode fried. Yeah, I'm sure everybody's is. But I will say for those who everybody had the same thought that's Depeche Mode fan when Fletch died. Everybody was like, either bring Vince or Alan back. Uh, Sorry, guys, you got to move on from that. Just shut that down. Yeah. Like you said, they did bring them back for some remixes and they're all on good terms. They they do respect each other. 
But that ship sailed. Yeah. Yeah. That's why they respect each other. They set healthy boundaries and have maintained them. Yep. And the last interviewer I listened to was them promoting Memento Mori. And Dave did say the final song on the album was written by him. And that's kind of to Martin saying, let's keep doing this because we have a good thing going. And I thought that was really sweet. It's a great album. Uh, minus one song. I can't. Why are you critiquing? Let people make their own choices. Damn it. If they would have just left out that one song. No, don't say it. Okay, anyway. Maybe it's somebody else's very favorite song. uh, Most likely it is. Um, Overall, their career is lock solid. Like, they don't have bad albums. I do think that the three albums in a row, Sounds of the Universe, um, Delta Machine, and Spirit... They're good, consistent, but they're very safe albums. They're safe. And they're not consistent with Depeche Mode's need to keep pushing and reinventing. And that's why I think Memento Mori kind of changed everything because it is an experimental album and it takes risks that they hadn't really taken since playing The Angel. And there's emotional vulnerability in this that is pretty forward-facing and also incredible performances so this gives me a lot of hope that if they do want to keep going i'm all for it however i kind of wish for fletch this would have been the final like just wrap it up with a beautiful last album but who knows no way just go to the end as long as they keep touring i want to see them again they have not toured the universe so we're still waiting for that (laughs) we're still there Okay, everybody, that's enough on Depeche Mode. Thank you for sticking with us. Thanks for also helping us not have to divide this into three. Also, you're welcome. Yeah, you are welcome, Dan. We did a lot of work. A lot of work. (laughs) Okay, well, we will see you next time. We hope you enjoyed it. If you like what you heard, you can follow us on Instagram at Lasergraves. You can check out all our back episodes at lasergraves.com. If you know somebody who loves Depeche Mode because you don't, recommend our show. Bye. Bye.